The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. The alarm bell is uh, being sounded about a move by the UCP to stop funding what are known as injectable opioid agonist treatment clinics. They are in Edmonton and in Calgary, and that funding is expected to stop in March of next year. More than 600 Albertans, including patients, their families, doctors, nurses, and social workers, signed a letter that was sent to the government recently. Now, to find out more about these clinics, what they do, and why people are concerned about them shutting down, we're joined by Dr. Krishna Balanchandra, who is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Alberta Psychiatric Department, and he also works in one of these clinics. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Can you tell us, you're, you're one of the 600 people who signed this open letter to Premier Kenny. Why? I think there's a bit of frustration and concern. You know, it's, uh, you know we find we're living in the midst of an opioid overdose uh, epidemic. And so we need to really think about a comprehensive list of um, services we can offer patients. And this is an important part of that piece. And without it, uh, this is a very um, high-risk group, uh, a risk of overdose and death. So this is why we're all very concerned. So tell us about these clinics. Now, from what I understand, I mean, this is kind of a, a almost a, a last resort. You go through different steps before you get to one of these clinics, right? I just have to back up a little bit. I mean, when we think about opioid use disorder, mm. I mean, this is a cr- generally a chronic long-term condition. Okay. And so the problem is there's a very high risk of relapse. Ah. So for this particular population, things like just plain detox and abstinence models generally don't work because of the high craving and the high risk of relapse. So we have a spectrum of treatments which include things like methadone or buprenorphine. So medications are first line, but it still doesn't work for lots of people. Hmm. And those people, especially ones that are using uh, injection drugs, who fail the traditional treatments, we have this as you correctly said, it's sort of a last-line treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens um, at, at these clinics then? Well, I can give you a first-hand account because I actually work in one of these. Wonderful. Places, and I actually, my shift is every Sunday morning. And uh, I'll just tell you, like yesterday, yesterday when I was at work, I showed up for 7 a.m., and there was already somebody waiting for the doors to open. So what we do is we actually provide medical-grade opioids for people to inject, supervised, and supervised by nurses. But it's actually way more than that, because not only do we provide them a safe, known quantity of medication for them to prescribe, because we know that without it, they're probably on the street getting some illicit supply of you know, unknown, most likely contaminated street drugs to inject. So we provide something that's safe and medically supervised, but we provide so much more than that because uh, we provide a whole comprehensive care package which includes medical services, mental health services, social services, because, you know, the people that we work with have more problems than just opioid use disorder. Dr. Balachandra, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know so much about uh, about this i know that the government i think it was uh, steve buick the acting spokesperson for mental health and addictions um said that uh, it was a quote in, in an article recently that out of the 94 patients first involved in this pilot project nearly half have turned transitioned to other 
opioid medications and planning is underway to transition the remaining patients to other treatment and community supports. He goes on to say our government's priority is treatment and recovery, not providing addicts with addictive narcotics. What do you say to that? And, and what happens when you take those clients that you're working with now and moving them to another program because from what I understand the reason why they're in this program to start with is because the other programs didn't work. Exactly I think those comments are misguided um, and misinformed and quite frankly hurtful Mm. because this is a population that's you know really fallen through the cracks and what we're not doing is you know we're not just giving them you know medications inject and that's it we're trying to actually engage them in a recovery process. It's that those other ways just don't seem to be working for this population. I have the latest numbers as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. So initially when we started with the funding, we had a capacity of 60 patients. Right now we have about 28 that continue with the injectable portion of the treatment. And we have about 22 patients who we've managed to switch over to oral. And what's happened with that is that's all because of COVID actually. So when when we're in the midst of that pandemic and patients were restricted and couldn't actually come to the clinic, we were actually providing some medications uh, in a home form. And some of them, uh, you know, some of them have been injecting for a very long period of time. We're talking decades. Mm. And some of them actually have been able to switch and, and stop injecting. But, you know, we had to engage them in that process. Okay. So it, it has worked for some people, but you suspect that there are going to be some folks that it's not going to work for. Yeah, I, I think that you, that's true. I think there's some people that, that are just not ready. Mm-hmm. You know, th- 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 there's a lot, of, and I don't have to even look at my text line, doctor, to tell you that there's just people out there who can't wrap their head around this, and they're like, no, uh, we shouldn't be providing uh, drugs to um, people with drug issues, with drug addictions. Um, what do you say to, to those people? You know, Jalen, that, that's actually me. Um, that's me because I came from a very conservative uh, environment. I came, I'm a very conservative person by nature. But you know, this is something that really I had to wrap my head around by looking at the science. What I knew was in working in this field, this was something that was so um, far out there for me that I came from a very traditional abstinence-based education and model. But what happened was we were just losing people left and right. And what's been happening is, you know, steadfastly holding on to that abstinence recovery-based model, we were losing a lot of people to overdose and death. Mm. And that just is not acceptable to me. So I think that harm reduction and treatment are on this continuum, but we have to engage people. But the bottom line is when people are dead, nobody can do anything. (laughs) And when we think about the people who are suffering from it, it's the wide gamut of people. These are not people who are just you know, down and out and skid row and in the alleys, these are actually sometimes people who are high functioning, who actually have incredible potential. Dr. Krishna Balanchandra joining me this afternoon. Um, one of the things I, I was reading, there was um, uh, an article um, and there was uh, some studies from the Canadian Research Initiative in Substance Misuse, and it shows that this program, these types of program, um, not only reduces illegal drug use, 
they also keep people in treatment and health care and reduces criminal involvement and incarceration. And when you look at that overall, doctor, you'd have to think that the, the cost of running this program would be offset by keeping people out of the hospitals, out of the criminal system, all of those sorts of things. That's right. I think that's a good quotation of the literature, and that's what it shows. For this treatment-resistant special population that nothing else seems to work, that this actually would eventually save money. Up front, there's no question. Up front, there, there is a little bit more added cost. But you're right. When you think of incarceration, when you think of repeated 911 calls, mm-hmm. showing up in the emergency, and all the problems that can happen from com- com- complications, so for example, hepatitis C, HIV, and things like you know, blood-borne infections and endocarditis, that can be extremely costly. Working in doing what you're doing, doctor, and you talk about how, you know, your mind, you changed your mind and your thoughts on, on all of this. And, 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 and you've seen what's happened with the opioid epidemic uh, over the past a couple of years, and especially over the past six to eight months. When you're looking at those numbers, um, do you feel do you feel helpless at times? Like you're you're, you're just like, <laughs> how, how's this ever going to get fixed? So I think we're actually doing some good things on the front line. And, you know, Alberta should be proud because when we look at North America, we're doing some really innovative things. For example, the naloxone take-home program. Mm -hmm. We probably lead North America in having the lowest barrier and easy access to something like that. So that's been an amazing uh, achievement that we've all uh, collectively worked towards. And, you know, what we're talking about, the opioid agonist part, it it, it is a small, but it's an Mm -hmm. important part. And if we... If we have that, then I think we have the entire continuum of treatment options. So I'm very excited to have that. And the other point you talked about is having worked in this clinic, when I see people inject in front of me, you know, it's nothing like that I've ever seen in the movies. You know, basically, they come in quite sick, come, come in like physically in severe withdrawal. They, t- they take the medication and they feel fine. And afterwards, when I have a conversation with them, I'm having a very clear conversation with them. They're not intoxicated. They're not, you know, passed out. Mm. Nothing like that. I, I guess the next thing is then, okay, when they're at that point, is is there... Can, can we get one of um, those patients then to into a, a oh, no because this is the last this is kind of the last resort of it my thing is is if this is the end all be all for them does this continue for the rest of their their lives you have said there there's been some transitions elsewhere some folks won't be able to so this will be it for the rest of their lives well prior to us being involved in their lives you know a lot of these people had been injecting for a very long time mm. But what we do is what we, it's individualized actually, because we're dealing with fairly a small group. What we do is we, we ask the person, you know, what is the goal? What did you, you want to work with? Yeah. And so what their goals are actually, it might initially not be uh, anything to do with this. It might be, you know, I want to be, I don't want to be homeless anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I've got some psychological problems that I want to get addressed. So we, we might start there. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating work uh, that you're doing, doctor, and I appreciate you taking the time to explain it. I know uh, the government has said what they're going to wait for a report on this to to see if um, any funding may or, or may not continue. Um, how hopeful are you that more money will be set aside for this program? 
No, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I met with uh, the Associate Minister, Luan, last yep. year, and I, I found it to be very, I mean, he's a social worker by, by his training. I found it to be a very warm and personable individual, and I just hope that in this situation, the science prevails. I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon, very much so. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Dr. Uh, Krishna Balachandra joining me this afternoon. And again, it's it's one of those programs. It's kind of like that last step, right? I mean, people have gone through, there's like three levels and they go through this one, go through the next one, and, and then there's this one. And then there's the concern about what happens if that is no longer there. Yeah, we know that money is tight. Money is tight all over the place. Um, but we've had this conversation around numerous topics, especially when it comes to, to homelessness and, and addiction, is that if we start um, taking care of them, we put some money up front here, that in the long run, it saves money elsewhere, right? If, if we're treating it here, we are keeping folks out of the prison system, we're keeping them out of the law system, we're keeping them out of the, uh, out of the hospitals all the time, we're, we don't have police um, dealing with them as often. Um, and and it, 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 takes, it takes a lot of belief and a lot of will to say, okay, we're going to do that. Right? And, and I still am not 100% sure that, uh, that that will is there.